Welcome everyone to PRISM Misinfo Meetup number six. I'll just speak briefly here to that burning question, what on earth might PRISM be? We are an anti-misinformation media company. We make products that make Americans and others better at understanding the news as they consume the news. It's not a big outfit, but we have big aims. We do events like this one. We publish a weekly newsletter. We think thoughts about what else should be done about misinformation culture. We also have an affiliate support group for the loved ones of misinformation. I know some of you know about that already. If anyone is interested, please DM, and I'm happy to point you in that direction. So I'm Kevin. I'm editor of Prism Meta News, and I'm your host this afternoon. What is Misinfo Meetups? If you're new to Spaces, the quick and dirty is that Alex and I, as co-hosts, can have up to seven or eight speakers activated at a time. If there are slots, we will try and honor requests to turn on microphone and contribute. That said, we've got our featured participants, folks who have agreed in advance uh, that we're very grateful for, who um, we expect will do most of the talking, but we're happy if people turn on you know, request to turn on their mic and um, ask a question, make a comment. I'll also be checking on DMs periodically throughout for anyone who's more comfortable sending a question or comment that way. I may be able to relay something I receive there, or you can tweet something and at us. Um, we'll try and look at those notifications as well as they come in. These meetups are really just getting going. Each one has been better than the last. We've had we've had a lot of success and really good times with them so far. This is the sixth one. Our aim really as one of PRISM's primary aims is to bring together the disparate anti-misinformation camps that are out there. There's media literacy to OSINT and everything in between. Uh, we feel like these are, are an important venue for that kind of interaction. The first three sessions we did, we just chatted about the misinformation news of the week. Then we did a special one that was about unbreaking social media and news consumption. Last month, we did another special one talking about disinformation researchers and resilience. And this is sort of a companion to that one where we are going to focus more on the publishing level of misinformation, disinformation. So I hope you get something out of it. I hope you say nice things about it afterward and all that. Just a heads up to everyone. This is also the first time we are recording the session. We have not been successful in making the recording, the native Twitter spaces recording function work. So we're kind of doing it another way. It won't show up as this is recording currently, but just so everyone is advised. Our plan is to make that available, post it up just as soon as we figure out how to do that. Um, you should follow Prism on Twitter if you aren't already. That's how you'll know when the newsletter drops for one thing. And maybe more important for people listening today, you'll know when we do these misinfo meetups. These aren't on a regular schedule. So we can really only set them up like two weeks in advance max within Twitter. So following is really the only way to stay in the loop. If you want to support um, Prism Meta News, please sign up for our weekly missive, This Week in Misinformation. We publish this late on Thursday nights. It's a fact-based clearinghouse for all you need to know to stay in the misinformation fight, really coverage of all kinds of misinformation goings on. And we do a summary of top stories, kind of pull together different threads and tell three or four, sometimes four but usually three top stories. It's an easy five-minute read. And then there's like 100, 150, sometimes more links that we include each time for you to dig through if you're really motivated. Uh, we draw heavily from the published work of our esteemed reporters on the misinformation beat. So if you like this session, I think you'll really love the newsletter. So with all that, on to the discussion. Journalists are a critical part of the anti-misinformation ecosystem. On the one hand, just really any quality reporting has a remedial effect on the overall information malaise. So 
we're grateful for everyone who does good reporting of any kind. But in recent years, there's been a kind of a new phenomenon where newsrooms have carved out misinformation as its own specialized beat. Sometimes it's sort of from the technology side. Sometimes it's more from the people side. But you've been seeing this more and more. I love this. It goes right to what I'm always advocating, which is we have to deal with misinformation head on. We need to build anti-misinformation infrastructure that can help turn the tide back from where we come. So the folks we have today are professionals who file stories and or write books about misinformation. These are folks who have seen a lot and have told a lot, and we're really excited to have them. So we've got David Gilbert with Vice News. Mike Rothschild is the author of a QAnon book called The Storm is Upon Us. Stephen Monticelli is reporting great stuff from Texas and I think Arizona. You went to Arizona, right? <laughs> um, for the rally a couple weeks ago. And Eric LeVay, who's an investigative journalist published in The Daily Dot and other places. Also, a shout out to other folks who I know are on the line here. We've got folks who write on misinformation for uh, the Huffington Post and BBC. And it's really fun to see you on here. Just a kind of an editorial note here before we launch into the discussion, which is there's like hoops to jump through for professional journalists who belong to a newsroom and have brand association to be able to do an event like this and to be a speaker. So um, we we cast kind of a, a wider net and uh, we were able to get a few really solid folks. And then there's other folks that really wanted to. And uh, in the end, weren't weren't able to do that. But we're grateful for for those who are here and those who tried to be here and uh, those who are here but just listening. So it's really wonderful to have so many whose work I rely on and whose character I respect here with us. This feels like a great event already. With that, I'm going to dive into the topics and throw some questions over and uh, we'll be on our way. The first question I have is about this decision by a news organization to have reporters on the misdis beat or not. Why do some news orgs do this and others don't? And kind of what drove that that change from, say, like five or ten years ago where you really didn't see this to now? It's fairly commonplace. Well, I guess just to, uh, you know, state the obvious, it's it's necessary, right? I mean, this is, as far as I'm concerned, this is the beat that <laughs> one of the most, if not the most important one. So uh, every newsroom needs a, and you're starting to see these job listings uh uh, everywhere come up, which is great. But what's more important than disinformation and misinformation, in my opinion? Agree with that. I would say that generally one of the things that I've found in doing this work over the last few years and sort of watching this transition over the last 10 years is that conspiracy theories, disinformation, all of this stuff is so much more accessible now. And it's not uh, it's not possible to ignore it. At this point, it's not possible to write it off as don't feed the trolls or don't don't give it attention. You know, we've all seen that these things grow and fester no matter what, you know, legitimate newsrooms do. And to not cover them is to simply ensure that no one will be keeping track of it as it grows and festers. And I think a lot of traditional news outlets are finally figuring out this stuff is everywhere. It's not going away and it's seeping into every element of our politics and culture. So, you know, we might as well cover it responsibly and maybe break some good stories while we're at it. Adding on to that, I, I think there's also an element of being left behind and perhaps, you know, some of these outlets having had experience in the past where they've reported on something um, credulously and, you know, turns out that was not really what it was. 
and it has shown the need for this style of reporting and for folks who have an, a depth of knowledge on this. Because at least in, you know, Dallas, I, I am not a staff reporter at one of these places. And I've broken stories that these, you know, other places have been slow to pick up on sometimes. And so, I, I mean, I, I think it's a positive in that, you know, there's cognition of perhaps some of some missteps that have been made in the past or shallow reporting that hasn't gotten to the heart of the matter. Yeah, that's a good point about the job postings. You do see this more. You saw, I think, CNN was advertising. There was a whole thing about it because everybody thought they were really clever replying to CNN with these things. But their managing editor was out there saying, we're hiring a team to do this disinformation, misinformation. That's kind of remarkable, right? Like they're creating a team sort of where one didn't exist. I mean, you've got people doing work at CNN, but to be standing up a whole new thing really speaks to some of the, the growth that's gone on here. So what what's different between 30 years ago and now where that equation has changed from don't feed the trolls or don't give it oxygen? We, we all kind of, I think, understand the economics of amplification, right? <laughs> There's a whole lesson in this for like Joe Rogan and everybody else. It's when you have a platform and you put content onto it that lets it reach a lot more people than it otherwise would. Why did that shift in particular? Is it just the internet? Is it just the rise of social media just made that untenable to maintain as a strategy? Yeah, I think things are moving a lot quicker than they ever did. And there's a kind of equality in social media, which is great. And then the other side is that some, <laughs> I guess the, the downside is some, it, it's great to, to equalize like on this this website, right? Like on Twitter. A person who has a lot of credibility can have the exact same impact as a account with three followers whose video goes viral for no reason. And there's something good about that. And then there's something very scary about that. Yeah, I think it's unfortunately like what we, the people here are talking about, you know, the, the work we do and it's given more recognition than it ever has been before. It's also the case where the people who are spreading misinformation have never had such a powerful platform or platforms, even the ones who have been deplatformed off here or off Facebook or wherever, they're still got numerous platforms they can use and their supporters will find them. So I think it's the the idea of not giving it oxygen is just completely not completely wiped out, but I think in a lot of cases this stuff is out there and it's spreading and to ignore it would do more harm than to shed light on it, I think. Yeah, so I think that's the consensus now. We sort of moved on from just ignore it, and now it's we do this. But there's still that aspect of let's be responsible in how we do it, right? You got to be, uh, you got to put things into context. Don't just copy and paste over, you know, terrible QAnon, anti-Semitic content, and like put it into your article on this on this giant platform. You you approach it either from like this people angle. Here's how it's impacting people, or you approach it from a technology angle. Here's kind of what changes in technology have enabled these trends to grow and worsen, and what are the platforms doing about it, and these kind of things. That tends to be, I think, how how the reporting sort of happens. And we'll get a little more into how stories are chosen and framed and all that in just a minute. So, as a reporter or an author, you're working for or a freelancer, right? How does it kind of work for you? Do you report to an editor who has a lot of different things under their portfolio and you're the only person who's there pitching misinformation stories? Or are you part of a team? You've got other people that are sort of working on things you collaborate with. How is it in your organization or in your experience? I find that, yeah, like there's there's a group of us who are kind of covering extremism, disinformation kind of stuff. And we kind of talk 
to each other more so than to editors about stories and kind of bounce ideas around that way and we have weekly meetings specifically to discuss this stuff and yeah like in a lot of cases i think editors defer to the reporters who will be covering this stuff more because in a lot of cases it's just so in the weeds or in out of their kind of area of expertise that they they kind of look for guidance or an idea on whether this is something worth covering or not which has its own issues i think because obviously it's better to have more oversight where possible and more people but i think maybe disinformation is such a young beast or at least it is in a lot of organizations that the kind of institutional expertise isn't there but maybe that's just where i work maybe it's different somewhere else as a freelancer who's worked with various publications and different editors, I found that it often has to do with the editor themselves' awareness of these sorts of issues, the approaches for reporting on them, and uh, what that might also mean uh, in terms of style or the sorts of declarations or statements or assessments that might be made in these sorts of reporting. Because I think some folks may be hesitant to address some issues if there's a risk of being viewed as overly partisan or you know, correcting someone and not necessarily, quote unquote, looking sides of an issue. But, you know, I, yeah, I think it really does come down to institutional knowledge, support for this, a prioritization of this, and whether the editor themselves, you know, has a, an understanding and also a level of trust. Because some of these stories can also sound entirely bonkers. Yeah, yeah. I wonder yeah. about that because this this comes up a lot in just the interactions I have with people, which is not a lot of people in the world, right? Like broadly speaking, even the professional world and in the you know the knowledge economy, like really understand what is going on, what's at issue, you know, with a lot of these things. They'll see the headlines and kind of follow along a little. Maybe they have a friend who fell down the rabbit hole or something like that. But it's hard to find people, and I imagine that must be the case with editors who really like you can speak to them on a level where they're getting it. So that must be part of the challenge right as you're writing this is to kind of okay here's here's why this is a misinformation story here's why it's not in dispute you know definitionally that what we're dealing with is misinformation and also here's the angle that's gonna sell to the to the broader audience so that we're not just writing to our little community it's so specialized to the point where i i want to ask do you all like hang out with each other <laughs> like the the people who follow misinformation obviously we kind of like look at each other on twitter but you know are there any are there any sidebar chats and forums going where you guys exchange thoughts on what you're working on, that kind of thing? Absolutely. And it's also, fun. I mean, not to speak for anybody else, but those groups also function as a, uh, a support group because this, this work is, uh, as everyone knows, is very disturbing. You know, it's like any other kind of support group. You have to be able to be with uh, friends sometimes um, and not think about it, you know? Mm. Be able to turn it off, yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that, that it's, it's important to just be able to talk to people who are into this stuff because it's just not possible really to talk to other colleagues or even your members of your family or friends about it because they just don't understand in a lot of cases. Because a lot of the stuff you're talking about just is never reported anyway. It's just stuff that's happening. So, yeah, it's important. Yeah, I have to commiserate with somebody over my yarn board on my wall that I rant over every day. <laughs> you're that guy. The, yeah, the true detective uh, board on your wall, Stephen. Uh, I was thinking Pepe Silvia uh, from Always Sunny in Philadelphia, but I mean, oh, okay. you know, yeah, it's, no. it's, it's all the same. It's all the same thing. Okay, <laughs> that's immediately what came to mind for me. It's 
it's interesting though, because to especially when you're tracing the spread of false narratives and looking at bad actors and how they connect to one another, it's really hard to do it in a way that doesn't look like you are also a conspiracy theorist. You know, there's a little bit of a there's a little bit of a meta thing there, and if you don't get it, it's really easy to mistake you for the yarn board guy. You know, are you thinking of one person in particular? I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, we're not going to get into that. But I think we're all susceptible to it. Um, Absolutely, no question about it. Just the nature of the just the nature of the subject matter. I want to open up to some other questions first from other folks pretty quickly here, but just the last couple things. You've got people noticing what you're doing. You're publishing. You've got your book coming out. Bad actors are upset, and now there's backlash. Right? People who like the things you're calling false are after you. Some of these folks are very extreme. Some of them are violent. Do you get threats? How do you handle that? How does your organization kind of handle the safety aspect of your work? And this, I want to make clear, like, is not entirely unique to people who report on misinformation, but I think there's something about reporting on misinformation stories that draws you kind of closer than is comfortable to certain parts of humanity, if I may say that. Thoughts on that? Well, I would say that um, just in terms of backlash, I get for the, the QAnon book, I figured I was going to get a lot and I really didn't get any, you know, a couple random trolls, but it really was nothing out of the ordinary. And I, as best as I can figure, like the book wasn't particularly insulting to the people who believe this stuff. But generally speaking, what I've tried to do, especially, you know, having had the book come out is I, I went through and, and, you know, scrubbed all of my identifying information that you could find in places like white pages. And I'm already pretty tight-lipped about my own personal life online. Like, I don't talk about my family. I don't talk about my kids. I don't even name my kids in the acknowledgments of my book. I mean, it's it's maybe a little overkill, but, you know, better safe than sorry. And they're too young to consent to have their names printed in dad's boring old book anyway. But you know, the line that I use a lot and I've really noticed in the last couple of years is that the harassment that I get as a reporter who covers this stuff is really very minor compared to the harassment that any woman or any person of color in any public facing job gets on a much more frequent basis. And I, I realize that I'm I'm very lucky in that regard and that it's really never gotten to the point where I felt unsafe or I felt like I had to change my life around to protect myself or my family. It's it's completely manageable for me and I really hope it stays that way. Yeah. And that's a great point about women and people of color. I mean, we actually talked about that in a bit more depth in the disinformation research and resilience conversation end of December where we had some <laughs> women and people of color speaking this panel, try as we might. I just couldn't make it work for any women reporting in this field. Uh, so I did just want to make a note there. Agree with that 100%. It's pretty scary. Like when you're, I mean, as a freelancer, like they're, like after this is over, I'm going to take a break. And then around five, I'm going to go photograph a, um, I guess what you would call an anti-mask protest or whatever. And you don't know what's going to happen. Like it's all, and you don't really have any protection. Like it's not like <laughs> it, it's it's different than when you're uh, full time somewhere. So just to put that out there, it's 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 scary when you're a freelancer out there. Yeah, when you're going, you're on the ground. There's some pretty crazy stuff going on around you. You've got to be concerned about that, and it must be 
unsettling to not have a team behind you. You know, there's like a... <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have you guys on Twitter. You have us, yeah. yeah um, and we'll come find you. <laughs> I, I, I mean, yeah, I, I think I want to echo the sentiment. I mean, there's definitely people who have to deal with this on a regular basis for stuff that is less controversial. I mean, I've been doxxed and had death threats sent to me, but, you know, they got my address. They can come on over and meet my dog. You know, there's really only so much that you can do. And you can protect yourself and take it seriously, but you can't really let it stop you from doing your work. Excellent. Okay, last question, and we're going to open it up some some others. I just wanted to ask, kind of at the meta level, how do you evaluate the impact that this reporting has? Do you feel like we're getting to a better, worse place? Do you see that there are things needed in addition to reporting? Should we, like the collective, we be doing reporting differently? Kind of thoughts on all of that. Uh, I think the creation of a lot of resources and institutions that have started to take this seriously is a sign, certainly, that, you know, there are people who are taking this seriously and that the reporting is impactful. But unfortunately, the kind of the way that I conceptualize it is as long as some of the root causes of it are still unchecked, what we're doing is kind of like putting our fingers in the dam. You know, it's it's useful and it's necessary and we can debunk things and push back. But I think there are some like deeper structural issues that conversations are being had around that as well when it comes to, you know, social media and the fact that there are these people who have access to a global audience, but there's no accountability on any level in terms of the publishers. So, yeah, there's there's definitely stuff that we're going to have to keep an eye out uh, for progress. But I mean, there are other metrics, too. You know, I think some people have been able to see legal recourse or other things like that occur. But that's not necessarily the only metric that I look to when I'm trying to judge whether this is having an impact. I'd agree fully with that, with Steve. I, I just fear that we haven't even begun to see the full scope of this yet. And that next couple of years are going to be pretty terrifying in terms of the volume and threat levels increasing especially against journalists as certain people come back on the scene in a in a big way and i think whatever's happened you know yes a lot more focus has been put on disinformation reporting but i think it pales in comparison to the amount of resources being put behind spreading huge lies on a massive scale you know the, the numbers are there people people believe this stuff now fully they've taken it to heart it's not going to change and that's just on one topic in relation to the election and we've seen what's happened with vaccines and stuff i, ju- I just think the environment that's out there yes we need more people covering disinformation but it's going to it's going to get worse i think maybe that's just my my pessimistic irish viewpoint of it I mean, I used to work in tech. One of the reasons why I quit that job was I had a mentee who was obsessed with conspiracy theories. And I worked at Google and I was like, how'd you get obsessed with these? And she said, YouTube. So our project together ended up being um, her doing a journalistic investigation into why she thought the 9-11 conspiracies were real. And then she ended up calling the project Don't Believe Everything You See. So maybe that was like, you know, kind of my first foray into doing this stuff. But I think it's right. It's going to get weirder and it's going to get worse. And there's like a lot of big, powerful interests that are putting their money where their mouths are. Yeah, I do talk about this a lot, but I keep coming back to it because when you describe, David, the investments that are being put into industrially spreading the misinformation about the election, for example, how are we going to get by if we're not making really any investments on the other side? And and there are some that are going on, but it feels like it's not enough. It's not going to keep pace, you know, and the other side has gotten a taste for, you know, how successful they can be. Every month that goes by, I think like this can't get crazier. And then somehow it 
continues to get crazier. And I wonder how long, you know, how long that's going to continue. And I think it will until we are serious and we do the investments, you know. I'm not, I'm not sure investment is just, is, you know, alone will, will really make a huge difference. Like these communities are everywhere now online, not just on mainstream platforms or listening to, you know, whether it's Fox News or talk radio or whatever. Like yeah. there are communities now have been established. They've been allowed to grow in the hundreds of thousands, millions, whatever, on, on alternative platforms that don't care about what they're saying or spreading. And they'll just continue to grow. You can, you can see it on, like, Telegram is just constantly amazes me, the amount of people that have been able to find these obscure channels. So I think there seems to be just a demand. People want to find these channels and their lack of trust in mainstream, not just mainstream media, but mainstream institutions from government to whatever, is means that they're just looking elsewhere. They're, they're not going, you know, so if you change how the media or Facebook or Twitter works. I'm not sure it's going to make it much of a difference. Yeah, I think you're right on the margins. I think one thing we can maybe learn from that, though, is for a lot of people, it's the sense of community. You know, they feel really involved in something that's bigger than themselves. Mm -hmm. And when I say infrastructure, I don't mean like necessarily not laws and regulations as much as maybe platforms and structures and tools and resources to help anti-misinformation people get together and push back effectively, right? And help one another out so that there's kind of a strengthening and reinforcing. But at the same time, like, can we can we leverage, right? Like what has worked for these Telegram channels? They're drawing people in somehow. Like, can we create something else but good that also draws people in and, and makes it more of a, not a whole of society, if not a whole of society, as many parts of society as we can get kind of on the same page about, you know, this is this is a problem. We can see it exists all around us. We agree on the definitions. You know, we're building these tools to be able to push back and do that together, I think, could be really powerful. I want to do like the the bizarro version of what they're doing with the Telegram channels to um, make a community that is more cohesive. We can. I think I heard Mike mention it the other day on Twitter. Um, let's be honest, like money is important. If someone would just put some rich person would just put some money into a real misinformation countering outlet. I mean, shoot, everybody, we, we join them. I mean, uh, the talent is here, but we need some rich person. That's what I'm saying. We need a rich person. Yeah, there we go. We okay, so if anybody listening knows a rich person, <laughs> what we really need is a rich person. I, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I think, look, like in Texas, perfect case study for the landscape. We've got over like 30 of these pink slime websites identified by CJR. We've got these misinformation outlets that are funded by millionaires and billionaires and very basically, you know, just special interests that are trending towards a certain type of politics. Well, and I look at at where the money is in terms of generating content, and it's all on the side of the conspiracy theorists. I mean, never mind Alex Jones's empire. I mean, if you look at a guy like Patel Patriot, the guy who came up with the completely ridiculous devolution conspiracy theory about how Trump is still secretly running a military government and he's going to come back any day. This guy started posting this stuff on Substack in, I think it was July. And within maybe four or five months, he was making so much money off of paid subscriptions that he quit his job. 
he doesn't even really post much about devolution anymore. He just does media appearances in that world because that's all you really need to do is create a, a conspiracy theory that a bunch of people want to be true and they'll give you money for it. There's no equivalent to that in the debunking disinformation world. And, and you know, mm. I'm, not, I'm not saying we need to you know run our own grift. I mean, certainly I'm, I would never say that, but like they are so good at monetizing it. And we just have maybe a little bit too much of a conscience to, to do that. I just want to speak up on that for a second. So I'm Nick Sawyer. I'm an emergency physician and uh, executive director of No License for Disinformation. We started back after there was some accountability. A group called the Federation of State Medical Boards was calling for physicians who are spreading COVID-19 disinformation and misinformation to have their license revoked. And since that time, that hasn't happened. But what we have seen is an explosion of disinformation doctors, really, which came to this really horrible event with the Stop the Mandates rally, uh, Defeat the Mandates rally, where there was a lot of um, pro-Nazi imagery and type of language that they were using. Uh, so that's just sort of like a, just a brief introduction. And so where we are right now is I, I, I'm really thankful for everybody's here who's doing the type of work looking into disinformation. The thing that I want to say first about, about about the grift is the grift allows this to be a self-perpetuating type thing. They use this grift in order, obviously, to raise funds in order to further their disinformation movement. I feel like everybody knows that we have too much of a conscience in order to do that. And that is obviously very hindering. The one thing that I did want to bring up that I'd really like everybody to sort of maybe consider is this idea of something that somebody mentioned a little bit earlier about the institutionalization of disinformation, which I think is a story that is being undertold right now. What's being done is this disinformation that has been embraced by enough doctors. I mean, they're in the fringe, no doubt. But um, what's happening is that state legislatures are now using this disinformation to do things like ban um the state medical boards from holding any physicians accountable for prescribing ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. In Tennessee, uh, an example of this is that one of the Tennessee state legislatures is threatening to completely dissolve the medical board there because they want to hold physicians accountable for spreading COVID-19 vaccine disinformation and misinformation. And the Republican legislators there are threatening to dissolve the board. There's another last thing I'll say is um, everybody's aware of this is another form of institutionalization of disinformation is the fact that two of the biggest disinformation doctors, Peter McCullough and Jay Bhattacharya, provided false scientific evidence to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals for the OSHA mandates and the CMS vaccine mandates which the judge then used in his ruling, citing this false information. And then the last thing is, is that SCOTUS, when they heard the case, uh, the same people also provided false scientific testimony to SCOTUS, saying things like the vaccines don't work against the Delta variant and so on and so forth. So I think that's a big story of where they're being very, very successful and I think requires uh, some digging into and that's what we do at No License for Disinformation. So if you have any questions, we know all the nitty gritty of this, but it's a big deal. And as you can see, they're using it to um, weaponize the pandemic to get people riled up in this sort of populist movement that's undermining all of our institutions. I appreciate that. And thank you for joining. Okay, Mike. Why? You got a question? 
Yeah, hi. Uh, my name is Mike. I, I uh, run a large pro-science, uh, pro-vaccine group, and um, I'm concerned about misinformation in, in mainstream media. Uh, and I was thinking today about that the Reuters article, um, if anybody saw it, that um, it, it basically falsely claimed that ivermectin worked, but it was based on probably petri dish studies see a lot of those and they did change the article slightly but the even the changed article was kind of confusing and, and still seemed to implicate that that ivermectin was working for covid and i was i was wondering if if there's been any attempt to um to change journalistic guidelines to to retract articles retract and replace uh, as opposed to leaving false articles up. Um, I find it very hard to get journalists to take down something that is false. And I guess I was I was wondering uh, if, if, if I knew that there was more of like a, a streamlined way to to get uh, concerns addressed, then um, then I would be more apt to to contact editors. Um, it, it's sort of a vicious cycle. So I was, I was just was wondering if anybody in the media uh, could kind of comment on that. Um, anybody want to take a step? You know, I'm I'm only one guy, but that would be news to me if such guidelines were being spread like broadly. I mean, I think it ultimately is unfortunately a bit of a case by case situation. I think there are some trainings that are out there that journalists can take and newsrooms can sign folks up for that seek to you know provide up to date awareness on this stuff. But I think what you're describing is unfortunately kind of a, just like a structural institutional problem in journalism generally that isn't just restricted to the ivermectin thing so you know I, I would love if someone has a more optimistic or more positive answer and i'm just ignorant no i think you're writing is case by case i think probably news outlets aren't the best at doing this like most places will most reputable places will at least try and make an effort to to fix incorrect articles i know we do but i think the other issue is that or one of the problems is and we see it with on social media as well, like the initial incorrect information seems to spread much quicker than any update or any clarification that comes after it. So unfortunately, once the, the horse is bolted, it's very hard to, to kind of fix that spread right. of misinformation. Like the very structure of these tools that spread disinformation, like Twitter, there's no edit button. So you can't yeah. go back and edit, hey, clarification in this very post. Uh, and then if you go back and delete it, well, then there's kind of also complications with kind of erasing the core of what happened to begin with. So we're just like we have bad tools and and then there's general understanding of how to do these corrections, but not everybody puts them at the top. Not everybody promotes them as much. And, yeah, there's this like general problem of the, the truth being less interesting than the salacious stuff that stretches it. Hello, y'all. This is uh, Tom here in Tokyo, Japan. Hey. And I had a quick comment uh, about the ivermectin uh, situation. And this is very interesting how this has emerged, because if you do look at Japan, you will see uh, what could be a very successful template for, for a lot of nations to, to deal with the COVID uh, situation. If you look at our numbers here, you will know that we... Uh, even though we're 100, we're just 130 million people, makes us about 39% of the population of the U.S. with very crowded population centers. We're running at about 5.5% of the U.S. COVID infection rate. I mean, and that's just astounding figures. It, it's, uh, it's similar with serious cases of 
COVID and deaths. We're up to about 18,000 deaths nationwide now over two years. And then what does that shake out to uh, out of the 850, I guess, thousand plus in the U.S.? So uh, you you put the figures out there and then you ask the question, well, do you want to know how we did it? And uh, then you get an onslaught of this. Well, you've used ivermectin in Japan, haven't you? And this is uh, trying to put this thing to bed has been very difficult. You know, you can show them that the Ministry of Health and Welfare here specifically has not allowed ivermectin uh, for use. It's not widely in use in the country. There are clinical trials, uh, which is true. Kiyosato University just released a report that there was some good effect of it. So, we're, you know, we keep an open mind about it. But in no way has it been responsible for our numbers here. What's been responsible is that we're now at 80% double vaccination with mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna. And we also have a very high masking rate here in public. Anybody knows anything about Tokyo, you'll see that, you know, 95% of the people are, are fully masked when you're out. Uh, it's a it's a heavily masked society. So we've done the things that public health officials have been advocating everywhere, and we we have the numbers to show for it. But you trace this ivermectin back to its roots; it appears to be some, something that a uh, you know a fourth tier preacher online in the U.S. just wrote up, and it took on a life of its own. So we we'll get people that come on, and the sad thing is that many of the people who repost it, you know, are sincere people. They don't. They don't, they're not in Japan, they, they don't read Japanese, they don't know our situation here, and they just repost it. So, you know, in my case, I've made a template uh, referring to a Forbes news article and also the Ministry of Health and Welfare to show that it's not a factor in here. It does not explain why we've had such good figures. But dealing with the issue of ivermectin, you know, I think is a great case study of just how you know, an irresponsible rumor can basically start and be accepted by, by gospel truth by uh, thousands of people online. That's just a comment I had within the context of Japan. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, Tom. And fun. We're like multi-continental. I think we've got people from the UK on, and now we've got Japan and in the US. So this is really quite wide-ranging. I appreciate that. Yes, the ivermectin piece uh, did come out pretty pretty notably with the Japan thing and the Reuters story this week. I'm glad we touched on it. Kevin, can I comment on, on something there? Yeah. Because we're talking about solutions. I think, not, not to go off on a tangent, but the best way that we can solve this problem is like, by the time people come adults and start to have these ideas, I personally, I think it's more or less too late. The real thing, and you're starting to see this in some countries, but not really here, this needs to be starting from kindergarten, training and what misinformation and disinformation is. And then that's way more powerful than anything that, you know, any of us could ever write. If we yeah. can just raise, you know, kids who know what this is, I mean, that's the greatest weapon that we'll ever have in this uh, fight. Yeah, yeah. There was a really lovely Scientific American the, uh, just a week or two ago, and it talked about just that, right? If you wait until college, it's definitely too late. High school might even be. Um, you really got to deal with this problem with the next generation at the level where they can learn the mindsets and those skills. Otherwise, it's really kind of impossible to change it later in life. They're, it's you know, they've already fallen for stuff because they get exposed to weird conspiracy stuff. You know, there's a broad question of like media literacy, and not to blackpill anybody too much on the on the call, but just go Google American literacy statistics generally. 
<laughs> so, you know, yeah, we need to have like a, a society that is taught to think critically and understand how to navigate information, which, you know, as like a millennial digital native type person who went to college, like, yeah, I, I learned that stuff. But um, and then you look at just basic literacy, not even media literacy rates, and maybe you will get a little worried. Right. Yeah. Well said. Awesome. Okay. I wanted to, WF, are you going to ask your question? I had yours I was going to ask, but if you're on, you might as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was just gonna ask mine. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, all y'all for um, just the work that you do and also for sharing this. So I'm I'm a very early career researcher, journalist, and I was wondering if y'all have tips for, you know, I, there's a fair amount of us early career people here listening in this space as well on just general tips for this, because a lot of the times it feels like trying to collect bylines while also trying to pay rent and get someone to take you seriously when you have a scoop. And also working kind of outside of any kind of institutional protection. Just in general, if y'all have anything, tips to add, would appreciate it. Thank you. I would just say what's worked for me is try to find a niche or like a void, which this is a space where there are plenty of them. And then you have to find people who will advocate for you uh, in terms of editors. That's really essential because, you know, especially if you're a freelancer and you're always juggling stuff, that would be the gist of my advice on the subject. And we could always talk later. I'm still dealing with all the same problems, so I'm not sure I can. <laughs> it hasn't changed much, <laughs> unfortunately. I had a question I want to read from a message that was sent to me. I've noticed sometimes misinformation stems from news articles or headlines that exaggerate the science. How can journalists balance between being accurate and also having a title or story that would attract readers? I've always sort of struggled with the titles because, you know, you want people to read it, your story, but you don't want them to read a version of your story that you didn't actually write because you wrote a title that was going to draw people in but not be about it. I, I get a lot of spam emails and like spam right wing newsletters and the, the headlines are always really, really catastrophic. Or really, like, you know, we just destroyed Joe Biden in court. And then you click on, you're like, oh, what? I didn't hear about that. And it's like some circuit court judge in, like, Nowheresville, Alabama, got a citation for forcing people to wear a mask. I mean, it's just, it's like, it's the um, the sizzle and the steak do not match up. And it's it's a constant struggle because you're, with debunking, you're, 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 you're telling people this is not true. So people want to believe that something is true more than they want to be told that something is not true. So it is it is a constant battle, and it's one that I don't quite have the uh, the secret to winning. That's true. What's the fun in what's the fun in pouring water on things? You know, like who wants that? That's sort of central to the dilemma we've got with this anti mission thing. I agree with everything Mike said, and then I think at an operational level, if you're a journalist. You're working with editors and the way that headlines work is often those are picked by editors and you have to be the expert also because the editor is juggling a bunch of different things all at once. So just boning up on your media literacy, on your science literacy, there are resources that exist that are out there that can help you choose the right phrasing to not overstate stuff and you know be able to write with clarity so that it's understandable and accessible without it being misinformation basically. And that's tough, especially if you get pressure from editors to make something sound really sexy. So, you know, I always try to suggest headlines uh, for my articles so that I at least have some sense of, you know, authority or authorship. In, and if they change it or if they throw it away, you know, that's their choice. 
I mean, it maybe tells me something also about who I'm working with, but, you know, they also have a role and they are good at their jobs when they're good and they'll make things better. There is no secret, like Mike said, but we have to take responsibility for like knowing what we're talking about, I think is really what I'm saying. And then advocating uh, for that when we know that we're right and not let that be overridden so that it, you know, doesn't end up doing a disservice to the work. Because, yeah, if you get a reputation for being uncredible uh, or lacking credibility and, you know, uh, always exaggerating or overstating your case that, yeah, that does a disservice to the work. And and we're in a territory where stuff is so bonkers and ridiculous that that's like a fine line to walk. So, I yeah, I think, Mike, everything you said is right. And it's it's like a working relationship thing and an expertise thing that just, you know, we have to put in the work to do it. Yep. Very good. Hey, um, stars of COVID, if you're able to, I know you've been having some technical trouble. And then afterwards, we'll go to choose who you echo. Earlier on, we talked about this information becoming uh, institutionalized. And and that's been a problem that's been happening in the United Kingdom as well. A few months ago, a story broke around a disinformation group called Heart. And it broke in Logically.ai and it broke in the Daily Dot. Their internal chats had been leaked. And it turned out they were <laughs> pretty pretty wild. But we discovered in those chats that they had been influencing conservative backbench MPs. So that's the governing party. Logically did a great job. Daily Dot did a great job. We weren't able to get that story into <laughs> the mainstream media. Uh, we weren't able to get it onto the uh, BBC website or various journalist organisations couldn't, couldn't make it happen. Um, yeah, yeah I, I've been having terrible trouble too. I think big tech is trying to silence me. <laughs> All of us, really. I mean, I've said I've things about Twitter, so I can understand. Where's my Tucker? Where's my Tucker Steven. interview? Stephen, plug the cash app. That's right. You've been canceled. Okay. Does anybody have a response to that, or should we move to the next? I, I guess if I could just comment on the, the, the what I heard was. I just, it is it is shocking as an American just to see how this is spread. Like, I don't know. I guess I always thought the crazy was mostly located here. Obviously, we know now that's not true. And that's been uh, shocking to see on a personal level. The tactics are also, you know, universally applicable. I think they've been honed and tested in plenty of uh, contexts. There, there was a lot of magical thinking about 100 years ago in a certain continent that led to some bad, no, not the only thing that led to some bad stuff, but it certainly contributed to a lot of paranoid thinking about secret plots. Yeah. Uh, so stars got booted, but he won't, the rest of his question was what's missing from the story. I mean, I think people speculate about this and people go down dangerous rabbit holes. So I don't want to go do that, but you know, there's questions around like, are there coordinating elements that are pushing similar strategies across the Anglosphere or other parts? There's like QAnon stuff in Germany, for God's sakes. People wonder about that. I, I think we can, you know, gesture towards it or have, a, have some guesses, but I'm not about to go start a sub stack. <laughs> some people have a sub stack and that's okay, right? I mean, about that in particular. Sorry, you know, to be clear. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Okay, choose who you echo. I think you're up. Hi, how are you? Um, I'm from Australia, so sort of same, same, but different. Why I'm speaking is because I just want to change the conversation back to communication and accessibility. So I'm completely uneducated and I have several disabilities, physical and neurological 
technological. And I've done a lot of charity work in the past. So this cohort of people who have access issues is sort of my jam before COVID. So talking about accessibility, um, effective communication, I think is key to accessibility. And that's what we don't have in general. So before the pandemic hit, this is sort of stuff that I was really focused on just for the disabled community especially in um, autistic circles uh, where we look at visual type of, um, you know, sort of that cognitive ease is sometimes needed not because of IQ, because we have a lot of very, very intelligent, professional autistic people within our circles. And what I sort of noticed watching is that a lot of these people that are being affected in the general population are looking for the cognitive ease and it's really poorly done, yet it's so expensive like effective it's working and I'm looking at how and why that is working because we can sort of learn off what they've done right in the way of they've actually getting the information more effectively across even though it's the wrong information although I don't have the answers I would like to point people in a direction of maybe exploring uh, teaming up with people who already are doing this stuff before the pandemic because you'll find a lot of the answers are very adaptable in mainstream so they won't just necessarily apply to autistic people or disabled people or people with intellectual disability these will just be general things you can add on to what you're already reporting and it will make such a huge difference and I know that because we can see how effective it's been with disinformation and in Australia it's been very very odd we've got I don't know if you've heard of Clive Palmer um, but he is a one of our biggest billionaires um, he's now running in politics he's taking up quite a Trump type base we have Trump flags and everything it's very fun He's like letterbox dropped all throughout the pandemic and I'm looking at the wording, I'm looking at the colours, I'm looking at the language. He's, he's strategically used the colours and the, the he's dumbed it down in a way that it's legitimately like QR codes to misinformation and lies, but it's effective. And the information he's actually got on there is sh like, I can see through it and I'm not educated, but I think I've been around people that, I guess, have helped me develop these skills because it was something I was already focused on improving for the community. I guess what I'd like to say is I'd like to hear more people in your circles and all over the world look at misinformation, disinformation, and how it is presented, and especially to summarise is accessibility is the key. And there's also accessibility issues with um, paywalls. So Murdoch um, owns all of the local print media all over. My local paper, I think there's also a, a trust in local print media that Australians have had. But the last decade has changed since 9-11, our Sky News is like your Fox News. And they've really, really ramped up and changed and bought all up the regional papers and they're targeting regional areas. There's a lot to unpack there in terms of like the broader disinformation ecosystem and bad actors, how they work, the trust that people have in different levels and all that. And after a while, I think you'll see more and more people who are sort of in that middle, who are rabbit hole adjacent, who 
who are vulnerable. Rumor flies, I want to get to you. I know you've had your hand up. Uh, hi. Yeah, um, I guess information literacy is the kind of question that I want to present to you all. I wanted to ask about, like, what do you think the best way to approach the one of the strongest tools? And from what I've seen, a lot of the misinformation circles uh, has, is, which is uh, scientific dumbfounding. Two examples that I can think of in particular involve COVID. That is both the VAERS system and the idea of preprints. VAERS, for a while, is a very helpful tool for the vaccine courts for people that actually were affected by vaccines because injuries do happen in any situation. It may be rare, but it still happens, and there's a compensation program for that. And VAERS is a very good way of um, finding the reports and for it to be reviewed by professionals. However, once again, almost anybody, actually anybody, can write a VAERS report, whether it be um, true or not. It's clogging up the system, and it's essentially rendering the system inoperable, and it's just a weapon now in terms of uh, just kind of flaunting different injuries or deaths from the COVID vaccine. And then also uh, preprints, which are a useful tool for the scientific research community since they are not necessarily peer-reviewed, that's the big problem with them, but they are a good way to bounce off ideas between other researchers that might be interested. Most people will not have the know-how of how to actually look into a VAERS report or a preprint and A, identify that it's a preprint and be able to counter whatever the claim is that somebody is loosely using from this preprint. I guess what I'm getting at is what have any of you seen to be the most effective way of condensing the information concerning some of these pieces of information that could be true, but it just hasn't been proven yet, and conveying that it hasn't been proven yet to people? Because it's kind of in that information ether where it hasn't been peer-reviewed, but it still could be true, and also this report hasn't been reviewed, but it still could have happened. How do you get ahead of the misinformation circles that don't need that verification? That's a really good question and a very, very hard one. I think over the past two years, we've seen a lot of nuts stuff with disinformation, but we've also seen the development of some pretty amazing epistemic communities. And what I mean by that is like, for example, epidemiologists in researching COVID outside of institutional boundaries. You know, th those sorts of things require trust and like baseline understanding, shared assumptions, a shared framework, all that sort of stuff. And when we're talking about you know, like conveying scientific information from publications or academic circles. I mean, it's a very old problem of just condensing that stuff and conveying it in a way that it is understood without risk of misapplication or just totally getting it wrong. And there's there's contradictory and conflicting interests here. On the one hand, it's like maybe ensconcing this stuff a bit and, you know, keeping it within certain epistemic communities where people understand it might help, but then that, that's at the cost of transparency. And and so I think there's a lot to learn from groups that have done a good job of coming up with ways to convey this information. There's a lot of examples of them. I don't have them all at hand, but I, I mean, I think that is like a very, very difficult challenge that folks have been working on for a long time. And, you know, it would certainly help if there were better training for journalists and writers around conveying this stuff well, so that we can get to it as fast as the people who just want to manipulate it and use it for whatever political purposes they might have. So, I mean, I don't know if that answers your question well, but those are my thoughts on it. Thank you. Thank you for that. Huge thanks to our featured participants. That was a tremendous conversation. So I'll post this, a thread with kind of the encapsulation of what we discussed. Watch for that and look forward to seeing what you all tweet about what you heard here at us. I'd love to see it. 
thanks to all for being here, supporting the anti-misinformation cause, and for taking an interest in efforts to fix what we can. Look forward to seeing you all around Twitter, and remember to follow if you haven't.